This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. On today's episode, Michael McCambridge comes back on the show to discuss his 2004 book, America's Game, the epic story of how pro football captured a nation. America's Game has been labeled by many historians and critics to be the best book ever written on pro football. And in this interview, Michael and I talk about a wide variety of subjects from the book, including the conception of the idea, the legacy of Pete Rozelle, the impact of NFL films on pro football's growth, and much more. I think most of you that have read the book will find Michael's insights to be thoughtful and interesting, and if you enjoyed the conversation, subscribe and share. That said, thank you all for listening, and now, enjoy the show. Okay, Michael McCambridge, the author of America's Game, the epic story of how pro football captured a nation. Thanks for joining us again. How are you? Very good. Good to be with you again, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever go back and reread the book? Bits and pieces. I don't know that I've gone from page one to page whatever the number of pages is. Um, I think I went through it pretty extensively in between the hardcover version and the paperback version uh, because there were some there were a handful of errors that needed to be corrected. But I've not gone and, and read through the whole thing all over again. But I have gone back and and read through some passages. And um, for the most part, I think it holds up pretty well. Do a lot of people still reach out to you saying how much they love the book and everything like that? You know, they do. It's somehow been in print now for going on 17 years. And I'll still, you know, every month or two, somebody finds their way to the book and reaches out to me and says, you know, thanks for that. And and it's, um, you know, in, in fairness, uh, social media has helped because all the like-minded geeks find each other, as you well right. know. And so people who dig football history um, spread the word and, and that's, that's helped a great deal. Well, yeah, well, I, I think I first read it about three years ago at this point, but I had known about it for a while because I remember when I was in high school watching the Full Color Football documentary right. that you were interviewed for for Showtime and NFL Films. And when I actually read the book, you know, I got like a larger sense of the entire history of the NFL, you know, and you know, obviously it was more than just the AFL, NFL, but you could definitely see how a lot of it was inspired by what you had written. And I'm sure. curious, you know, for something like as as this, you know, how did this idea kind of take shape in your head? And what was it like to pitch this idea to your agent or your publisher? Because I think prior to this book, maybe there was a couple football epics. I mean, I think David Harris's The League that you reference in here could be one of them. Uh, but it seems like this is something that could be a hard sell just because of the amount of information that could go into it. So what was that process like, too? Well, the first to answer the first part of the question, it occurred to me sometime in the late 90s that everybody acted as though as soon as somebody pointed a TV camera at a football field, presto, the NFL became number one. And I was sure it couldn't be as simple as that. And I thought the implications of that were just much more profound because 
at the end of World War II, baseball was still unquestionably America's national pastime. And within a generation, by 1970, that had changed. And you know people, the, the people who say basketball is my favorite sport or football is my favorite sport or baseball is my favorite sport, that's something that's kind of at the root level of someone's personality. That's not a change that happens easily. And yet in, in really impressive numbers over that generation after World War II, those things flopped. Football picked up like 10 to 12 percent and baseball dropped that. And I wanted to find out why that was. So when I pitched it, I had a, I had a couple things going for me. Um, it was the late fall and playoffs were, you know, just around the corner in the NFL. I had a book on the bestseller list that I had edited, um, the ESPN Sports Century book with all these terrific writers like David Halberstam and Joyce Carol Oates and Wilfred Sheed and Nelson George. And David Moranis's Lombardi biography was on the bestseller list. So it was a perfect time to pitch this broad history of football. Um, and then, you know, that, then it, then we got the deal with Random House. And that's when the trouble started. The first thing I did when I got the deal, big mistake. I read David Moranis's Lombardi biography and it was so good. And I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? Um, and I, I just had to step away and sort of um, not try to write that book, but but tell this story. And it took much longer than I thought it would. I thought it was going to take two years and it wound up taking five years to write the book. And by the, you know, there was, there was a whole, um, there was a whole series of misadventures um, along the way. I remember at one point, it's probably two years in, I went to my agent, uh, Sloan Harris at ICM. And I said, Sloan, you know, um, this is maybe two books. This is maybe one volume on 1945 to 1970 and another volume 1970 to the present day. And Sloan was like, well, OK, I'll call Random House and see what they say. And he called me back 10 minutes later and he said, yeah, Random House says this is not a presidential biography and you're not Robert Cairo. And it's it's one volume, you know, basically write the goddamn book. Um, but it was I wound up talking to like 300 people and and it just took that long to do. And by the time I got to about the beginning of 2004, it was starting to come together and I felt like I think I've got something pretty good here. So I'm sorry, ask a question, you get a plot. I didn't mean to go on so long. Well, you're a writer. That's what we want. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you had to take out of the book whenever you were editing down that you wish you could have kept in? Or was everything in the final product, in the final edition, everything that yeah. you had envisioned? I can't remember a single thing being taken out. I've had I've had books where, you know, they're, we have to run it by legal and legal says, no, we can't say this. We can say this. You got to water it down. But no, I, I uh, and I that was one of the reasons I did so many interviews, because I wanted to make sure I had two sources for for, you know, any of the things that would be contentious claims. Um, and so I, I, I spent a lot of time I spent a lot of time on that. So I think 
I think everything went through. I certainly can't remember anything that got taken out. Now, what were like some of the books that you had read growing up that really influenced you and made you want to become a writer? Because I've read, I think, two or three of your books now. And whenever I read it, you know, I get the sense that you're someone who had grown up reading a lot of books and someone who was very moved by detail and obviously having a sense of passion. So what were some of the books, football or not, that really influenced you growing up? Um, Even before the books, it was Sports Illustrated. Growing Mm -hmm. up in the 70s, in the golden age of Sports Illustrated, it's like, you know, some some writers and poets talk about reading the New Yorker every week and, and what great writing that was. Well, if you were a sports fan, reading Sports Illustrated every week was nearly as good. It was, um, in fact, James Michener in Sports in America in the mid-70s said only the New Yorker was a better written magazine than Sports Illustrated at that time. So that helped. Um, Roy Blunt Jr.'s About Three Bricks Shy of a Load which still in my mind is the best pro football book ever written. I found my way to that um, in the mid seventies and thought that was marvelous. And then Dan Jenkins writing about both college football in nonfiction form in Saturday's America and pro football in fictional form in, in semi tough. Um, It wasn't so much his writing style because there's no point in trying to imitate Jenkins but it was that sense of people, and this both Blunt and Jenkins had this, people who were serious, people who were aware of the larger social and cultural events of the day, but also recognized how important sports could be, even being aware of literature and being aware of theater and being aware of music. And I'd not really seen that before before Jenkins and Blunt and some of those Sports Illustrated people did that. And it was that sense of not having to apologize for being a passionate sports fan. And so when I was writing America's Game, I was very mindful of, I don't want this to read like a sports book about history. I want this to read like a like a history book that covers sports. Yeah, it's a good point you're making about you know transcending or maybe not deliberately trying to transcend that genre, but, you know, kind of writing sports books that are, you know, unapologetic, but also important. You know, it's like reading uh, the last season of Weeb Bank with uh, Paul yeah. Zimmerman. No, you just get like such an important portrait of a man that I think by a lot of standards today has been largely forgotten in football history, um, unless you actually follow the field itself. Right. And I, I think the one other thing, and this is to take nothing away from David Harris's book, um, which was very well researched and very thorough, but I didn't want to write a book that was just about money. I just, it felt like there's, there was so much more that was going on to cause pro football to succeed. And I think just focusing on the money was, it's almost always the least interesting thing about a story. And so I didn't want it to be about Um, They made this much this year and this much that year and this much and this was what the owners I wanted it to go beyond that. So that was that was something else that was in mind. Well, whenever I first read that book, too, that was something that completely it blew my mind, number one, because the amount of research that goes into it, because, you know, he, he goes in a lot of different directions with all the owners. You know, it's like he's talking about, you know, Gene Klein and Baron Hilton, their feud for the Chargers and then uh, the stadium deal with I think it was Art Modell. 
And then yeah. even just like the Roselle rules that he put in about like not having multiple ownerships in different leagues or even within the NFL. I mean, that was a part of pro football I always knew existed, but I never really gave much consideration to how much it influenced. You know, reading that book kind of made me think it could be like almost like a soap opera. You know, sure. it was like a board. It was a boardroom soap opera. And I was completely blown away by just a part of pro football. I never gave much consideration to. Yeah, definitely. And and yet the the thing for me was i don't remember the particulars but like i don't think john unitas was mentioned in the book yeah and, i think john mackey's the only player that's mentioned right and so i i wanted it to I, I wanted it to focus on what was going on in the field and obviously there were other forces that affected what was going on in the field who was on the field how much they were getting paid but i wanted to keep that focus on not how the game became um, more lucrative, mm -hmm. but how the game became more popular, how it became more compelling, how it um, how it created this sense of pull for people all over the country on a Sunday afternoon or or then a Monday night. Now, what about for you personally? Like, what is it about football that captured your imagination and gave you that pull towards the sport? Um. Uh, I'm going to quote Dan Jenkins uh, here talking about college football. It just always seemed more important than anything else. I mean, I can just remember as a as as a young kid growing up completely football silly and the idea of Nebraska's playing Oklahoma on Thanksgiving Day in 1971. Mm -hmm. uh, it just felt like everything depended on that. And um, I grew up in Kansas City and was a Chiefs fan. And I can, I can, you know, I'm, I've had a lot of great Christmases. I'd be hard pressed to name what was the great Christmas. But I know damn well which one was the worst. It was Christmas Day 1971, the longest game ever played. Uh. And the Chiefs losing to the Dolphins in double overtime. And that, um, you know, that just felt like a, a mortal wound at the time. Um, and those there was something about something about the game being played outdoors the sense of combat the sense of physical jeopardy that the that the players were involved in um that always that always spoke to me and you know i, I love all sports and there's moments of postseason baseball that are just excruciating there there are moments of big soccer matches where you're just on a on a knife's edge but but football just always seemed that to have the to contain multitudes and have the greatest sense of drama and intensity. And it was, uh, you know, it was an ordeal. It was an ordeal to watch it at the stadium in cold weather or rain or snow. And it was an ordeal to watch it on your couch if you really cared. And so whatever's in the DNA, I always cared. Yeah, I think it's like the uh, I think it's the Steve Sable quote where it was like a ballet on the field. You know, he was like he looked at the field like it was a movie screen. Right. I think that's kind of an interesting kind of comparison because you do see like this dramatic feel with football where even like the 40 second play clock just gives you that tension building up. And then, you know, you could have a touchdown, an interception, a fumble, like anything could sort of happen from that tension afterwards. Exactly. And. 
so to kind of go off the uh, ownership angle, uh, the book kind of starts off talking about uh, Dan Reeves when he's in uh, Cleveland as the owner of the Rams, and he's not making any money or he's making you know not enough to really want to stay in Cleveland. And can you kind of go into how his decision to move the Rams to Los Angeles and sort of how he operated his franchise as an owner kind of foreshadowed what the NFL would ultimately become? Yeah, and I, I should say that when I started working on the book, I didn't know that the Rams were going to be one of the franchises I would focus on. I don't think it was anywhere in the proposal. But as I started doing interviews and started doing research and learned more about it, it became very clear very soon that the Rams were pivotal. Because to your point, um, the Rams had been the champions in 1945, first year after, first season after um World War II is over, and yet they're losing money left and right. Um, Daniel Reeves referred to those as Irish dividends, his, uh, his annual losses. And he had wanted for some years to transfer the franchise to Los Angeles, um, but the NFL owners had voted against it. Now, as the NFL survives 45 and survives all the manpower shortages of World War II, they are faced with this challenge by the new All-American Football Conference, which has much better heeled owners, which has the most powerful sports editor in America at the time, Arch Ward of the Chicago Tribune, supporting it, and has the best-organized, best-funded franchise going to be in Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns that were going to be coached by Paul Brown. And Reeves recognized he had to get out of Cleveland. So he went to the annual meeting in January of 46 and made his case that he needed to go. And the owners originally voted against it. And Reeves said, I'm, I'm out of the league then. And finally, cooler heads prevailed and he was allowed to move to Los Angeles. So in that sense, in that meeting in January of 46, the NFL became the first truly national sports league 12 years before the Dodgers and Giants moved to the West Coast. But the other thing that happened because of that was the Rams shortly thereafter had to petition to play their games in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And at the hearing to approve their rights to play at the Coliseum, um, one of the writers uh, for a black newspaper in Los Angeles, Hallie Harding, got up and made the very um, relevant point that this public facility was being offered to a league that hadn't had any black players since 1933. And at the time had come, especially after African-Americans went and fought for America in World War II, the time had come for blacks to be allowed to play again in the NFL. And the Rams general manager, Chili Walsh, being put on the spot that moment, said that Kenny Washington, the great UCLA back, would, would be able to get a tryout with the Rams. And it was in that moment that the NFL reintegrated for the first time in, in more than a decade. And so that, that Rams move set so many things into motion. Um, and a few years later, the, when television was really starting to take off, the Rams signed a deal in which they televised their home games and attendance went down rapidly and that was the thing that shaped the NFL's position of blacking out home games because they didn't want to hurt the didn't want to hurt the gate. And that was in effect through 1972. 
So yeah, that's it's very important. Yeah, and um, whenever you look at like the NFL not wanting to go west prior to that move, what was the logic behind it? I mean, did they just was it like a cost of just traveling out there, or it was the cost of traveling out there? It was the you know the you have to recognize that before World War II, air travel was not really an option for most for most sports franchises. So then they were looking at train travel and and because there was only one team out there, it was going to, you know, it was going to cost uh, a lot of money to to fly out there and and put the players up. And so that was a consideration. And one of the things Reeves had to do was double the standard guarantee that visiting teams received. And because he doubled it from I think $5,000 to $10,000, um, that's when the other NFL owners finally agreed, okay, you can have your franchise out in Los Angeles. He made it worth their while. <laughs> yes. Now, back on the East Coast, once 1958 comes around, we have what is called the greatest game ever played. And that, as you described it, was a chance for a lot of Americans to see what they were missing out on because so many of them had just disregarded the pro game because they thought it was going to be inferior to college. Uh, and obviously, Johnny Unitas kind of ushers in this new brand of quarterbacking. Um, but it, it doesn't seem that the Giants get talked enough about for their contributions to sort of modernizing the NFL either. So can Certainly. you speak as to what they were contributing in the mid, mid to late 50s and how they kind of gave legitimacy to the NFL or pro football, I should say? Yeah, I, th I think that the Giants' move to Yankee Stadium was huge. That happened in 1956. They played in the polo grounds, and whatever you think of the polo grounds, it wasn't a really good place to watch football. Um, Frank Gifford, I remember him talking about suddenly the year they went to Yankee Stadium, um, the executives on Madison Avenue are sort of becoming enamored of the game. They find it more exciting um, more action going on than in baseball. And suddenly he notices that he and his teammates are getting invited to better parties, better restaurants. Suddenly there's this change in this sense of um, really for the first time in the history of pro football, not just notoriety, but kind of glamour to that Giants team. And so I think it the, the 1958 game was huge because it was a wonderful game and it was nationally televised in the first sudden death championship game. But it was also important, the two teams that played, because the Giants were the Giants were the best known, um, most popular team in the NFL at that point. And then you have these upstart Colts with Unitas and all of the characters um, if you've seen Diner, you know something about the characters of that late 50s mm -hmm. Colts team. But it was it was these two dynamic teams coming together in this wonderful saga of a game. And and then it happens to be uh, watched by like 40 million people and they see something they'd never seen before, which was a championship game going to sudden death. And. That, I think, was the moment that pro football gave notice that it could eventually challenge and ultimately surpass baseball. A lot of things had to happen after that, um, but that was kind of the first sign that something could change. And in that shift from baseball's popularity to football, I mean, how, how would you kind of describe like the transition in like the American sports fan psyche that really made them gravitate to a sport like football as opposed to baseball? Well, 
I think it wasn't just the game itself. It was the way the game was marketed. Um, so the other important event happened in 1960 um, after Burt Bell's death when the NFL owners are stuck in Miami Beach trying to name a new commissioner and they can't come up with one and they go through 22 ballots and they just can't figure it out. And finally, they, they settle on the general manager of the Los Angeles Rams, this 33-year-old PR executive named Pete Rozelle. And Rozelle did a few hugely important things within his first few years. First thing he did was move the league offices from suburban Philadelphia to midtown Manhattan at the heart of the media and advertising communities. Second thing he did was follow the example of the upstart American Football League and negotiated a package TV deal so that teams in Green Bay and Pittsburgh were making the same amount of TV money every year as teams in New York and Chicago. There had been a vast disparity when teams were negotiating their own contracts. And then the third thing that I, that I write about in America's Game is Roselle, who was a fan himself, had this real sense of how to market the game more aggressively. And he did it through NFL properties and some of the some of the things that were offered there, not just shirts and caps, but but more sophisticated items like, um, you know, beer steins and highball glasses and, and things like that. But then, of course, there was NFL films and Roselle recognized that the league if it could find a way to portray its drama to a larger audience, could show all that was going on in football, that it would be to the, to the benefit of the league, whether that arm of the league made any money or not. And NFL Films was never very profitable, always sort of hard-pressed to just break even. But Roselle recognized all through the 60s what that was doing to the appeal of the game. And people who would not describe themselves as hardcore football fans would take a look at slow motion replays set to dramatic music and see the breath coming out of the players on the on a sub-zero day in Green Bay and appreciate the drama that, that the game had. Baseball had nothing like that. Basketball had nothing like that. All those things, that confluence of factors of Roselle selling the game to a larger audience and having this almost missionary zeal towards you've got to see our game, you've got to see how how can we make it even better. At a time, frankly, when baseball was sort of standing in place, um, one of the people I talked to for America's Game was the great baseball writer Bill James. And he said, you know, the problem that baseball had was they felt like being the most popular sport was a birthright, like they were entitled to it. Right. So what happened is by the time baseball figured out that it was falling behind, it was already too late. Yeah, I mean, it just seems that once NFL Films kind of comes into the picture, that's when everything just gets flipped upside down. Because, you know, even when you watch like um, like the 19, I think it was 1962 championship game that they filmed between the Giants. I mean, yeah. just the way they went about it was just great. You know, like that small town versus the big cosmopolitan areas. And then even like just going through YouTube and watching a lot of the old because they used to have like packages that weren't just like team highlights. You know, they had like the thematic, like the young, right. the old and the bold and stuff. There was just a lot of ingenuity that I, I think really kind of added that mythology to the sport. 
And the opening, I don't know, seven or eight minutes of the Super Bowl three highlight video, which I mentioned in my book, um, which has all of the the quick cutting um, with the novelty song about Joe Namath and, and how popular he was. And then contrast that with this almost old Western gunfighter motif of showing Johnny Unitas, you know, in his final years um, was was marvelously done, was not just excellent football. It was excellent documentary filmmaking, and it was Sable at his at his most passionate. Now, I will say one of the things that's changed is that movie, the Super Bowl three highlight film. They had like a couple months to work on that. Mm-hmm. Now, as you know, um, the Super Bowl highlight film, you got a couple days to work on it because it's got to go to market and and be sold and be in people's inboxes, you know, a week later. Right. So it's a it, it was a it was a more fertile period for creativity. Well, it just also feels that the influence, like you mentioned, had this cinematic feel because obviously Steve and his father were big film fans. You know, they talked about, you know, there, there was a pretty good book written, I think, by Travis Vogan, Keepers of the Flame, which right. talks about the history of NFL films. And they talk about like how you know, Kurosawa was an influence on them, you know, John sure. Ford Westerns. And that's something that I think is missing in a lot of like sports productions today is that you kind of miss out on like that, you know, ulterior or you know cinematic influence if you will. And even, even a guy like Bob Costas has said that, you know, I think that the actual NFL films are much more interesting than the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think in some cases that certainly if you don't have a team that you live and die with, that's Mm -hmm. almost certainly true. Um, Then the other thing that, that we have to mention is in 1970 at a time where pro football is already eclipsing baseball in popularity Roselle says there's a bigger audience here and pitches a package on Monday night Mm -hmm. and all three networks initially are not interested and it takes Roselle basically threatening to, to form, you know, to go and form his own TV network before ABC comes around. And it was the good fortune of the NFL that ABC comes around with Rune Arledge running ABC Sports who takes the game broadcast themselves to a whole new level. Um, and it, again, feels more urgent, more important than it did when you had a, a two-man booth during the day. Suddenly, these are, these are things that everybody's talking about at the water cooler. These are things that, you know, the day after, what did Dandy Don say to Howard? How did, how did this go down? And, and, to come back again to NFL films, one of the things Arledge did was he said, we're, we're not going to have marching bands at halftime. We're going to have NFL films give us, you know, a couple dozen plays, which we will show. Howard Cosell will narrate. And that was, I mean, I'm 58, so I'm ancient. Um, you can't imagine this coming from your generation. But in 1970, 71, there, there were no highlights. There was you either saw the game on TV or you went to the game and you might get a couple plays from your home team's game that night on the nightly news, but there, there were no highlights. You would have to wait till later in the week when this week in the NFL came out to even see highlights. Now, suddenly on Monday, on Monday night, you've got five or six games being shown. And that was the first time you were able to see those plays was the first time you saw Dick Butkus, 
catching a pass on a on a fake field goal, or you saw Tom Dempsey breaking the record for the longest field goal ever. Um, I remember talking to John Madden, and he said those Monday night highlights were just as important within the league. He had an assistant who would interrupt the coaches on Monday evening as they're installing the game plan for the next week's game to say, hey, it's halftime on the Monday night game. And that's when the Raiders coaching staff would take their, quote, lunch break, and they would sit for 10 minutes to watch Cosell's highlights because that was their first chance to see what was going on as well. That's interesting because it seems like back then you had to basically find out who the projector or who like the film uh, projector was projectorist for different teams and try to get the film. So that's interesting. I, I didn't think about how that would impact the actual on the field game plan. Yeah. Do you, when, when, with Roselle, do you think that his like uh, media and forward thinking approach to public relations, like would you say that had more of an impact on the NFL's success and becoming a sports empire as opposed to the on field product? Or do you think one really had to complement the other? One had to complement the other, but Roselle was crucial. I mean, yeah. You have to remember, as NFL attendance grew every year during the 1950s, so it was consistently growing in popularity. But I talked to some writers who would call the NFL offices in suburban Philadelphia in like 1959. Phone would ring. Somebody would answer, National Football League. And the writer would say, could I speak to Commissioner Bell? And the voice at the other end of the line often would say, speaking. Because Burt Bell was answering the phone. They had like a five-man office. They had one guy who was the, you know, the treasurer, one guy who was in charge of rules, um, one guy who was dealing with player personnel and, and um, usually a temp secretary. And that was it. So it was very um, small potatoes. And it took someone of Roselle's sophistication to be aware that there are very good reasons to spend more money to be in Midtown Manhattan to nurture these relationships with advertisers, with media, with TV companies, et cetera, et cetera. Roselle saw that. And again, it wasn't just a business thing. Roselle had grown up loving football. And so he wasn't just coming from it from, okay, what can we do to make more money? And the something like NFL films, he was coming from a fan's perspective. What would make the game even more compelling? What would make it even more interesting? What if we improve the quality of highlight films? Because before NFL films, you know, there had been highlight films, but it was like one static camera at the 50 yard line. And you'd see a replay here and a replay there. And maybe a couple on-field shots pregame, and that would be it. And um, to your point, the Sables took it to a whole new level. Yeah, they used to have like sometimes like that hokey narration in the, <laughs> throughout the films. Yeah. Now, when we talk about like the on-the-field product between um, you know the AFL and the NFL, obviously when they merged, uh, you mentioned the 1970s, uh, the popularity is still growing, but there's sort of like this feel that the game has gotten kind of stale and kind of boring. You know, they bring like the hash marks together, thinking that it's going to open up the passing game, but teams start running the ball more because defenses can disguise coverage a little bit and doesn't put too much emphasis on one side of the field. Um, do you think that that was sort of a testament to the AFL's legacy for how they just completely opened up the game and made people see a new way to experience football? 
Well, I think the AFL's the AFL's legacy can be seen in a number of ways. Um, certainly, names on the back of the jerseys, the two point conversion, which Lamar Hunt tried for a generation to get through and finally succeeded in in doing once once the leagues merge. Um, I, I don't think of it particularly in that rule change so much, although what I, in my mind the real lesson of those rule changes is how often there are unintended consequences of rule changes. I mean, to your point, when they moved the hash marks in to be equal with the goalposts, there was a feeling that that was going to open the game up. And what it did was it made teams even more willing to run because now they they weren't so concerned about not being able to run to the boundary side of the field, which is what they were faced with when the hash marks were farther apart. Um, and to the competition committee's credit, they saw this and they further liberalized the passing rules. But even then, I mean, one of the great one of the great stories of unintended consequences is in the mid seventies, as the Steelers dynasty was starting. Two people on the competition committee that were furious about the bump and run rules and how how much Mel Blunt would beat up receivers were Tech Schramm of the Cowboys, who had lost in the Super Bowl to the Steelers, and Paul Brown of the Bengals, who was trying to beat the Steelers in the AFC Central. And so they they instituted what was essentially known as the Mel Blunt rule, which said you've got to give the receiver five yards. You only get, you know, you only get one chuck and, and then that's it. And it freed up the receivers. What Shram and Paul Brown did was help open up the game further. What they probably weren't planning on doing was freeing up Lynn Swan and John Stallworth for that second round of Steelers Super Bowls because they got open a lot easier in the new liberated passing rules. So that Steelers team of the mid-70s was run first. It was Franco Harris and that great defense. Whereas by the end of the 70s, the defense was aging. I remember Jack Ham saying that winning the Super Bowl felt like a putt that that like the last half revolution of the ball, the putt falls into the hole. Like they just barely <laughs> made it. But they were much more of an offensive team, you know, and they scored in the 30s in both of their last two Super Bowl wins in the 70s because of the rule change. Um, but what the NFL was doing then that baseball has only recently started catching up with was on a yearly basis asking, how can we refine this? How can we make the game better? How can we make it more watchable? How can we make it more consistent? Those are things that that football has in its DNA now thanks to Roselle and, and the competition committee. Yeah, especially when you look at the entire you know history of the game. I mean, you could just do you know a whole book about, and there have been books done just about the evolution of the rule book. I mean, it really yes. is incredible just how, I mean, I remember a few years ago, I read, um, it was a book called Anatomy of a Game, and it's more focused on the college game, but it was published in 1991. Uh, the author had died actually before it was released, but it really just breaks down every little rule change that the competition committee and the NCAA right. had to go through. And it really is just magnificent to see how a lot of these are really inadvertent and then right. they become something, they take on a life of its own. Yep. And for the, uh, the AFL, I think if I remember this 
uh, correctly, they had approached uh, Bud Adams and Lamar Hunt back in the early 60s before they had. Why did they feel the need to go to them so early on if they were confident that the league wasn't really going to get off the ground or pose a serious threat? Well, I think that, you know, the Lamar Hunt piece of the story is he grew up son of the richest man in the world, um, took his lumps as a third string end at SMU had a bunch of money because of who his father was and this trust, but was totally kind of bored with the oil business, which is what the family was in. And what he really was, was a, was a sports fan. And Hunt was trying to decide, do I invest in baseball? Do I invest in football? And he watched that 58 title game. And he said, after that, he realized, no, this is, this is what I really want to do. And it's good on television. He remembered thinking that. And he said, who knew what that meant then? Um, but so when Lamar Hunt announced that he was starting the American Football League, he had been trying for years to, to get an expansion franchise, just wanted a team in Dallas, an NFL team in Dallas. But the NFL owners who'd been through World War II, had been through the challenge of the All-American Football Conference, they were finally starting to make a little bit of money, and they were not interested in expanding. And they told him that. And then they saw what he was doing. They saw that there was going to be a franchise in Dallas, Bud Adams in Houston, team in Denver, team in Buffalo, team in Los Angeles, Baron Hilton's team, the Chargers. Um, and I think around that time they realized, oh, hell, here we go again. And so what George Hallis and some of the other owners did was they tried to sabotage the AFL. They offered, They went through back channels and offered Hunt okay, we'll give you this franchise that you wanted. To Hunt's credit, he remained loyal to his AFL partners and said he wouldn't he wouldn't go to the NFL unless all the teams that, that had started in the AFL, they hadn't even played a game yet, but they were, you know, they bought in. And that's why it took that much longer to get a, to get a merger. And the rest is history. The rest is history. And- now, we've been talking a lot about uh, Pete Rozelle's, like, forward-thinking approach to... Um, media relations and public relations by the eighties. Do you think that's kind of an era when that strategy kind of backfired as there was so much negative publicity being written and broadcasted about the NFL? Like, do you think that ever present um, concept sort of had faltered to show the negative parts of the game? Well, I think what happened by the eighties was the toll of all the labor unrest, all the, mashing together between labor and the union began to take its toll. You had two strikes during the eighties. Um, you had Al Davis's lawsuit to move the Raiders. Pete Rozelle, definitely the most successful sports commissioner in American history, but the last 10 years were a long slog. He just was, everybody I talked to who was close to him said he enjoyed it so much less. Um, and it was just kind of a soul deadening experience. So what what it took a few years to accomplish after Roselle left was, and I think it's a big part of the NFL story and continued success, is the commissioner who followed him, Paul Tagliabu, built a relationship with the head of the Players Association, Gene Upshaw, and they brought about the collective bargaining agreement in 1993, which did a couple really important things. It offered the players free agency for the first time, but it also came with a salary cap and salary floor. 
So you didn't have the things you see in other sports, certainly in baseball, where one team has taken the field with three or four times the payroll of the team they're playing. Um, the other thing that Tagliabue and Upshaw did was sign an agreement that made the cap uh, float as a percentage of revenue. So as league revenues went up, the cap went up, everybody won. It was this sense, I think, by the 90s that Tagliabue and Upshaw both recognized the game was going to be better for everybody if you're playing the games and not striking. And the only way that was going to happen is if the players and the owners became genuine partners. And that meant that the owners had to give up more of the pie. That meant that the players had to recognize that there were cost controls that needed to be put in for the overall health and stability of the game. And Upshaw used to say to some of the players, you know, somebody's got to play in Cincinnati. And it, it was not meant as an insult to Cincinnati, only that not everybody could be in New York. Not everybody could be in L.A. And that that sense of that economic system that was created in the 1993 collective bargaining agreement, I think, was directly responsible for the greater gains that that occurred in the generation after that. And it's why the game is is so wealthy today. And now, in 1993, was it absolute free agency, or did they kind of have like the the tier system, like Plan B? And um... this was this was after Plan B was sort of thrown out. So the, okay. the one stipulation, and the the team that was arguing for this the most was the Broncos, was a franchise player designation because the Broncos had John Elway and they didn't want to lose John Elway that said you could you could designate one player as your franchise player and then that player had to make equal to the average salary of the top 5 players in the league at that position that was the one stipulation that the players agreed to that was not absolute free agency but was close enough for rock and roll as they say and it um i think the salary cap doubled within the first 10 years because of the cap being tied to revenue now, when I was reading the book, um, when you start talking about the 90s and the 2000s, uh, you had you interviewed Tex Schramm for the book, right? He was still living at that time. I had interviewed him. Um, I had started interviewing him for the first book I wrote on Sports Illustrated and then went back in the uh, in the late 90s and interviewed him some more. Yeah, he was still alive. Yeah, I mean, like from hearing from what I got from him, like uh, from hearing him and Jim Kensel, it sounded like what the NFL had turned into with free agency or with individual franchises kind of getting their own sponsors or fantasy football that I don't think maybe the gain or that their efforts were all for naught, but maybe there was a little bit of a bastardized quality to it. I mean, did you kind of get that sense from them whenever they were talking yeah. about what it had turned into? I think there are two, two aspects to that. Yeah. I think you're certainly right. Tex thought that the league spent a lot more time about business than they did about the game. And he resented that. But the other thing that's true is a lot of general managers and a lot of coaches truly thought that free agency would would hurt the game. They thought that, you know, um, an intricate offense or a complicated defense takes you can install it in year one, but it takes a longer time than that to master. And I think the Bill Walsh's thought it was going to be really difficult 
to have the sort of team you had in the 80s with with the 49ers in an era of free agency. And they were right. In that sense, you couldn't keep both Joe Montana and Steve Young in an era of free agency, right? One of them had to go, so they traded Montana. Um, I think that some of the owners and some of the executives were short-sighted, but I also think they were sincere. They thought that free agency would hurt the game. And what we've seen is, in many ways, the opposite. Um, the draft in April would create interest in the spring. That was already existed. But now you've got this round of free agency. And as you well know, when does the NFL news really stop? Well, it stops for about 10 days in June when everybody's on their vacation. And then it's it's almost year round. And free agency has helped that. Yeah, it seems to me like uh, I think despite the shortcomings of, you know, labor disputes that I think they were always kind of conscious of, you know, fan attachment to the teams. And, right. you know, to get to go back to Harris's book about, you know, franchise re- relocations and what you said earlier about Roselle really not enjoying the last 10 yeah. years. I mean, that seemed to be something where he just kind of felt that was a major defeat because, a big part of it was was always making sure that the fan came first and that they could relate with the players and the team. And then once that was gone, I guess maybe a lot of them had a hard time adjusting to it. Definitely. I think that's the case. Yeah. Now, who was someone for the book that you would have liked to have interviewed but couldn't because they were either deceased or they just didn't have any interest in partaking? Oh, well, I, I I had interviewed Pete Rozelle for my first book about the history of Sports Illustrated. And after that book came out, Roselle died, I think it was 96. And obviously, if I'd known that this was my next book, I would have spent a lot longer <laughs> talking to Pete Roselle. Right. So he yep. was one. Um, the other one, and it really smarted, I had a great conversation with the longtime general manager, Don Klosterman, who was a wonderful character. He was GM of... He was GM of the Chiefs for a while, the Rams. He was he was on a, a number of different teams. Um, and when I got the book deal, he was one of the first people I called. And we had a short phone conversation. And and I was going to follow up with him in a couple weeks. And just in those two weeks after we were on the phone, he died. Um, and it was it was sudden and unexpected. And I I really missed being able to to talk with him. So that that would be one that that jumps out. And, and if you could have asked Roselle just one question, if that's all the time he gave you, what would you have wanted to know? Um, I would want to know, Roselle always said that his decision to play games the Sunday after John F. Kennedy was assassinated was his greatest regret. And that was the decent thing to say, because, you know, there was a number of things that we we really couldn't have counted on. It was sort of the first time that television served as kind of the global village for people to grieve. But the other thing that couldn't be counted on was Lee Harvey Oswald is killed Sunday. Yeah. You know, right before the game start. Um, I, I would have liked to explore that a little bit more with him. And because I think at the time, Roselle felt confident of his decision. Um, I tell the story in the book about after he finds out that Kennedy's been assassinated, Roselle <clears throat> somehow manages to track down Pierre Salinger, um, 
the White House spokesman and says, Pierre, what should we do? And they talked about it and Salinger said, I, I think Jack would want you to play the games. And it was then that that Roselle did that. So um, I would have I would have explored that a little bit more with him. Yeah, I was listening a few weeks ago. Do you know Gene Shepard? Mm-hmm. The old radio host. Yeah, I was listening to a lot of his archives and I was listening to the episode of I think it was the weekend after JFK or a few days after he got killed. And he actually mentioned that about people going to a, a game and he mentioned, you know, like, could you imagine would this happen in Europe? People going to a soccer game if this were to happen. And I think right. he also said, too, you know, he can kind of maybe understand the sentiment like people maybe just need a distraction but i think it's one of those things if you're not in the position to make that decision you're not really gonna fully understand and and i also think you need to remember how strong the mindset was of i would call it the we can't let the terrorists win mindset yeah Yeah. i mean you got to remember the 72 olympics 11 israeli athletes are killed and they they took a break for a day, and then the games continued. And I'm 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 well aware of the arguments both for and against. Right. But there are credible views on both sides. What you do, um, and so I think that was very much ingrained at the time, and especially in the middle of the Cold War and suspicions about you know who was responsible for this. It it may have been a mistake, but if so, I think it was an honest mistake. Yeah, I agree. So a um, couple questions left. Who do you think is one of the underappreciated figures in um, the NFL's transformation into becoming America's favorite sports league? I think that the name that is least known that, that I, you know, that I grew really fascinated with during my research was the Rams owner, Daniel F. Reeves. Um, I think today when people hear his name, they're like, wait a second, is that the Broncos coach? They, they, you know, they don't know the difference. Um, but I think Reeves was important because of moving the team to the West Coast, because of reintegrating the NFL, because of the things he did with TV, because he brought Tech Schramm into the NFL. He brought Pete Rozelle into the NFL. He was the first owner to hire a full-time traveling scout. Eddie Cotel. And that was sort of all this madness we see in April and the 2022 mock drafts that are being put out now, even before the 2021 college football season. Eddie Cotel and by extension, Daniel Reeves was responsible for all that. And I I think that, um, you know, among other things, the Rams were the first team to have a player from an historically black college university playing for them. Um, That was Tank Younger out of Grambling in 1949. There were so many ways in which the Rams were trailblazers, and part of that was Reeves' commitment to trying to find innovative ways to do things. So he's, I think he's the one that is most overlooked. And to close off, so... By the time I got done reading the book, I kind of felt like I got a history of the NFL's rise to dominance, but I also kind of got a history of, you know, our image-based culture, like how people all of a sudden were now focused on the image as opposed to the written word or radio or what have you. So I'm curious, you know, you can't tell the history of the NFL without television, but do you think that you can tell the history of television without the NFL? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um 
No, because I think the NFL has become the 800-pound gorilla. What's happened in the last 50 years is the NFL has built on its advantages um, and very shrewdly, in my mind, done a lot of things to maximize its popularity. And I think that it's even more dramatic today in a culture with so much time shifting where, you know, oh, oh, I got that on the DVR. I'll watch that at some time. The NFL is one of the last things where, you know, I know where I'm going to be at 325 p.m. on September 12th. I don't know what's going on the rest of the weekend, but I know where I'm going to be then. That sense of appointment television at a time when we have so many video options and we watch things at different times, it is still, I mean, I've remarked on this before. The NFL schedule comes out in April or May, and there are people all around the country then who are like, okay, Thanksgiving dinner is going to need to be a little later this year, or it's going to need to be a little bit earlier, or okay, we're going to have to do Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve because we got a game Christmas Day. Um, And that's not just people in football. That's just fans who build their lives around around those games. And that sense of the games being so compelling, that is the nugget of the NFL's popularity. And the great thing that Roselle did and Paul Tagliabue did, even as they were making the league more money, they kept in mind that you've got to allow for the game to have its hold on fans. You can't lose sight of, because if if you don't have those fans showing up, if you don't have those fans planning their weekends around that, the game starts to suffer and decline. And there are a lot of other options out there these days, as you well know. Yeah, that's what makes it so powerful. Exactly. Well, I'm really glad you took the time to come back on. This was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, do you want to tell people where they can get the book? Uh, you can get the book at fine bookstores everywhere. If there are any fine bookstores still around, it's also available on Amazon.com and through independent bookstores on Bookshop. And uh, you can also get signed copies on my website at michaelmccambridge.com. Cool. I imagine most people by now have read it that are listening, but in case there's that one person out there, now they know. Here's hoping. That's right. Well, thanks again for coming on. You know, best of luck with the book you're writing now and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. I really appreciate it. Yes, good questions, Aaron. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Right, thanks take for coming care. on. All right. Take care. <laughs>